The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So that, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Well, hey, it's good to be with you again. Hope you guys enjoyed, and I I know that I enjoyed getting to celebrate Easter with you all last year to get to see uh, two of our church family members go under the water, uh, saying, declaring to the world that they are dead to sin and alive to God. If you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. Grab a Bible or your phone. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. If you grab one of those, it's page 568. 568, Ephesians chapter 2. Let me kind of orient us of where we are going today. So last week on Easter, we looked at uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. We talked about how our diagnosis, our state apart from God is that we were disobedient, dead, and doomed in our sin. But then in verse 4, we read this beautiful phrase that, but God being rich in mercy made a way through faith by his grace, by his love for us to be reconciled to God. So because of Jesus on the cross, dead, but also risen again, we can be made right with God. We can have relationship with him. Today, Paul's going to continue on in that kind of argument of what Christ has done for us by turning from the reconciliation, the relationship we have with God, to the reconciliation and relationship we have with one another. That not only has God, through Christ, become our Father, but we actually get, for better or for worse, brothers and sisters in Christ. That he has made us into a family. Now, here's why this matters for us today. We live in a world built on division. All around us, in both big ways and small ways, as well as our own sin within us, tempt us to live with what I would call an us versus them mentality. So let me give you a really simple, uh, silly example of this from a few years ago. So I grew up a lifelong San Francisco 49ers football fan. All right, so I'm not a bandwagon of any of those teams, but I, I was just like, yeah, I'm following them. I'm going to be a fan. And so I grew up watching them, rooting for them, cheering them on. But when Lindsay and I decided, hey, we want to move to Charlotte, feel like the Lord's calling us there to start this church, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm also going to become a Panthers fan. Like, that would be really fun to get to root for the hometown team, to get to cheer them on it together, this sense of camaraderie with our city, whatever. But the problem was that I was having a really hard time becoming a Panthers fan because at that time, their quarterback was a guy by the name of Cam Newton. 
I very much disliked and still dislike Cam Newton. Cam Newton was the quarterback at Auburn in 2010 when I was in college, when they whooped up on South Carolina in the SEC championship. And so me and Cam Newton, I don't like him. He doesn't know I exist, but I don't like him. So I was telling a buddy of mine this, who's a diehard Carolina Panthers fan. I said, hey man, I'm really trying to like the Panthers, but I just can't seem to do it. What should I do? How do I become a Panthers fan? And he said, hey, Tim, here's the deal. Don't start with rooting for the Panthers. Start by rooting against the Falcons. So if you're not aware, the Falcons and the Panthers are big time rivals. And he said, hey, don't build your love for our team by trying to grow it. Instead, grow your hatred for our common enemy. And then boom, you'll suddenly love Cam Newton and the Panthers. That's a really silly, simple example, but I think that mentality of us versus them, of tribalism, of the other plagues really all aspects of our society and the church. Or we see this really clearly the past year, right? Are you mask or no mask? Are you vaccine or no vaccine? Are you Republican or are you Democrat? Are you in this group or are you in that group? And the divisions that happen all around us also seep into the church and it becomes this tension-filled environment where we gossip about one another, we categorize one another, we view us as us versus them. So see this morning, 2,000 years ago at a church in the city of Ephesus that there was division as well. Specifically, the divide was between these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles or the non-Jews. And this was a religious divide So the the Gentiles were not a part of the family of God, and they were not included in the original Mosaic Covenant. It was a cultural divide. So the Jews had rituals and feasts and ceremonies that set them apart from other nations, and it was also a racial divide. The Jews could boast about being in the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and yet in this passage, Paul tells them and us that Christ himself has become their peace. He has taken these two opposing groups, these two enemies, and he has made them into a family. He has broken down what he calls the dividing wall of hostility. So it's now our charge as the people of God to learn to live in light of what Christ has already done for us. So here's where I want to go this evening. I want to work through this passage together. I want to try to help us make sense of what Paul is saying that Christ has done to give us unity with each other. And then we're going to end by looking at two common enemies to our unity within the church. So we're going to look at what Christ has done, how he's unified us, and we'll talk about two common enemies to our unity in the church. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into Ephesians 2 together. God, we are so grateful to get to gather with your people. As we were even praying before the gathering, just reminded that every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. We don't just get Easter to celebrate you and what you've done for us, but every Sunday and every day throughout the week, But especially every time when we gather together, we get to remember Christ, crucified, dead, buried, but also risen again. Thanks that you're ruling and reigning. Thanks for Jesus dying on the cross to unify us, to give us a family. It's a a tough, difficult, but beautiful thing. Help us to give a a vision, a glimpse of what it is you're calling us into today. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 2, we're going to start in verse 11. Paul writes to the church, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh 
by hands. All right, pause there. So this church at Ephesus was a, a, Ephesus as a city was a largely Greek or Gentile city, but there was also a large Jewish population. So this church would have had a good mix of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul starts by talking to the Gentiles, all these non-Jewish people. And he said, hey, remember that at one time you were called the non-circumcision, the uncircumcision group. So circumcision, if you're not aware, was something given to the people of God all the way back in Genesis 17. God speaks to Abraham and says, hey, you are going to be my people. And this physical sign of that is that every male is going to be circumcised. It's a physical sign of an inward spiritual reality. Keep going. Verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So their situation is bleak right? Division, hostility. They are separated from God. They're separated from the church. They have no hope. It's our status that we talked about last week and really the first three weeks of Ephesians, right? That they have no hope. They're without God. They're without Christ. Verse 13, keep going. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul says, hey, there's a new classification of people. Within the church, it's no longer Jew and Gentile. It's no longer rich or poor. It's no longer black or white. It's no longer old or young. It's all that are in Christ Jesus. His blood has purchased us. It's made us one with each other. And I love what he says, verse 14, keep going. He says, for he himself is our peace. So that peace there is the Greek word arene. And it's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word shalom. Right, this idea not just of the absence of conflict, so it's not peace like you and I, we're, we're not fighting, we're just kind of coexisting, but rather it means something much more deeper than that. It means more like wholeness or rest or flourishing. So what Paul is saying, remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago, God doesn't make us neutral with him. Right? We were enemies of God before Christ, and through the blood of Christ, we are not just made neutral with God. He doesn't just tolerate us, he actually welcomes us in. He actually calls us his chosen, treasured possession, right? We actually become sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family with an eternal inheritance, all of that. The same is true of our relationship with one another, right? The blood of Christ doesn't just make us neutral with each other. It doesn't just mean we can tolerate each other. It doesn't mean that we can just coexist, but I don't really like them. The blood of Jesus means that we are a family. We are bought together by the blood of Christ. Keep going. He says, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there are three relationships in Scripture where God says, or the Bible says, that God has made the two one. All right, there's three relationships. The first is between a husband and a wife. Genesis 2, right? God says, hey, these two people, man and woman, they'll become one flesh in marriage. The second relationship where two become one is Christ and the church. This whole theme in Ephesians, that we are united to Christ. The third relationship, and one I don't think we think about much, is us to each other. Paul says in the church, it's no longer two. It's no longer us versus them. It's no longer you and me. We are one together in Christ Jesus. We're caught up in this weird sense of relationship where we're caught up into Christ together and we're caught up in with one another together. He says he has made the two one. He's made us both one people, one group. Keep going. 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, here's the same thing, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
So it says here that Christ has abolished. It means to annul and fulfill the Old Testament laws, these commands and ordinances. In other words, what Paul is getting at is that in Christ, the old way of entering into and staying in the family of God is done away with. That now there's one cross, there's one sacrifice that Jesus has made that makes us right with God. Keep going, 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So remember a few weeks ago, back in Acts 15, right? The Jerusalem Council. The Jewish Christians are debating, hey, do we welcome in the Gentile believers or not? Are they fully a part of the church or not? And one of the big arguments that James gave for why they should welcome in, I think it was Peter rather, gave for why they should welcome in the Gentiles is that God gave them the Holy Spirit. He says they have the same spirit just like we do. Paul's saying in here again, one spirit by one spirit, one cross, one Lord, one Savior, one faith. This whole theme of two now becoming one. Let's finish it out, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. I love the juxtaposition of this passage. So Paul says, hey, before Christ, you were strangers and aliens. Guess what? Now you're citizens. Before Christ, you were outside of the family of God. Now you're members of the household. Before Christ, you couldn't enter into the temple. The Gentiles were barred from even entering into the presence of God to worship. And now not only are they entered into the temple, they are now living stones built into a living temple where God's presence will dwell forever. And then notice what he says, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So this cornerstone is the idea of it's the first stone that they would lay before they built the rest of the dwelling, right? So they would lay that stone, and if that stone was correct, the whole foundation could be built, and the, the whole structure could be resurrected on solid, firm foundation. And Paul says, hey, Christ is the cornerstone of everything you see here. Every local church expression, every global church body, every Christian, it's all built around one person, but it's Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. So here's the deal. This is what Christ has done for us, right? This is what he has done for the people of God. He's made us no longer us and them, no longer divided, no longer whatever. He's made us united as one. I love verse 14. It's past tense. He has made us one. Our unity in the church is already accomplished. It's already done. It's already paid for. And so the challenge for us, and what I want to talk about for the rest of our time, the challenge for us in the church is not to make unity happen, but to learn how to live in light of the unity that is already ours in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again, give you a chance to write it down. The challenge for us in the church is not to make unity happen, but to learn how to live in light of the unity that is already ours in Christ Jesus. This is already true about us. Christ has already reconciled us to God, and he's already reconciled us one to another. We have unity. We're unified. Christ is the cornerstone. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I want to talk about two common enemies that get in the way of us living out this unity in Christ. To be honest, there were a ton of ones that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about gossip. We're going to hit that in three weeks. Gossip, division, slander, how that gets in the way. I wanted to talk about forgiveness, but I figured I'd let Garrison do that in five weeks. 
so many ways, so many different things, but I want to address two. Two specific enemies, I think, specifically for our context and our church right now are important to hit on. Here's the first. Enemies of our unity. Number one, individualism. Individualism. In our Western secular culture, we are confronted all of the time with the lie of what some call rugged individualism. The highest ideal is that we maintain being a free, autonomous individual. No one can tell me what to do. No one should put unnecessary boundaries on me. And anything or anyone that goes against what I want or what I feel or what I desire is not just wrong, but harmful, dangerous, and oppressive. We see this in alarming ways through things like cancel culture and unhealthy use of good concepts like boundaries. We're told to move past or to get rid of anyone in our lives who holds us back, who tries to change us, who doesn't help us get ahead or let us be our, quote, true selves. And this idea of the autonomous self is absolutely plaguing the church. Individualism kills our unity from the inside out because what happens is the church then becomes, like the rest of my life, about me. We view it through the lens of questions like, am I being fed? Is this meeting my needs? Do I feel connected? Do I feel like I belong? Now, none of those questions are bad in and of themselves, right? None of them are harmful. None of them are bad to ask. But what's harmful is, as we begin to ask those questions, we start asking less, how can I contribute? How can I be involved? What can I bring? How can I help God get the glory here? Which is really what every local church is actually about anyways. What happens is we begin to live with the mindset of it's all about me. As we do that, it begins to create in us no desire to commit to a family of believers, no desire to sacrifice for the good and growth of other Christians, no desire to stay the course when it gets relationally difficult and other sinners hurt us. We only learn how to bail. Here's how Joseph Hellerman puts it in his incredible book, When the Church Was a Family. Uh, If you're new here and you're like, what do you mean by Jesus-centered family on mission? What's that family piece? Joseph Hellerman, when the church was a family. If you want to know what we're about, what frames up, what we're going for as a church, I would highly encourage you to read that book. He says this. He says, they call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. We've said this before, and we're going to say it again and again and again. The Bible has no category for a lone ranger Christian. The New Testament gives no category for someone who thinks it's just me and God. I'm a part of the big C global church. I don't need to be part of a local church expression. The New Testament doesn't get that. It doesn't give any freedom for that. What the Bible does teach is that if you belong to the family of God, that you will identify being a part of the family of God through being a part of a local church body. To put it in the language of the passage, to be a Christian and not belong to a local church is to say, I want to be a stone. I just don't want to be a part of a building. I want to be a son or daughter, but I want to be separated from my family. I want to be a citizen, but I want to be separated from my kingdom or nation. None of those things are good. One of the reasons why we put so much emphasis on church membership here, why we talk about it, why we push for it, why we celebrate it like we're going to next week, is is that's our way of saying, hey, I'm in. I'm committing to this family. I'm going to be here. You can count on me. So we practice it. We talk about it. We celebrate it. Everyone who becomes a member here commits to the same seven things. We call it our membership covenant. 
And it's seven things that guide how we live as a family. Just like your nuclear family has guidelines and rules and rhythms, we want that same thing to be true for our church family. Those who commit to a local body, those who stay, grow. And I think how this gets most of us, because a good chunk of us in the room are members, is not through us not wanting to become members, but actually through failing to continue to practice the things we committed to each other. Let me say that again. I think the way that individualism gets most of us is not through saying, you know, I'm not going to commit here. I'm not going to belong. That's certainly some of us. But for a lot of us, we say, hey, I'm in on paper. I'm in by name. Those seven things, those are things that I agree to. Yeah, totally, you can count on me. But then our day-to-day lives, our week-to-week lives, our month-to-month lives, we forget what we've committed to the other people sitting around us. We don't show up with presence. We stop being available. We stop loving. We stop forgiving. We stop believing the best. Listen, it's hard. Absolutely. Being in the family of God is hard. It comes with friction. It's a bunch of sinners trying to figure out how to live as a family together. That's going to cause tension and problems, but it's also a beautiful, tangible grace gift from God. This is how Hellerman continues in the book. He says, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. A posture that says, my life is about me, my church is about me, my relationship with Jesus is only about me, kills the unity that was purchased by the blood of Christ. So we have to go back to the gospel. We have to let it fuel us to push back against our apathy, against our laziness, against our self-protection. I think one of the biggest reasons why we withdraw from church community is because we've been hurt. It's dangerous. It's hurtful. It's harmful. It's hard. It's scary. But the gospel reminds us that Christ sacrificed for us. He shed his blood so that we could be united together. That's the first one. Enemy number one, individualism. Enemy number two, counterfeit reconciliation. Counterfeit reconciliation. I'm going to stay a little closer to my notes, make sure I don't say something I don't mean to. I went back and forth on what to call this one. Uh, I think you could call it false unity. I thought about for a second calling it uh, performative reconciliation, but I thought counterfeit was probably the best It's uh, basically a desire for unity or reconciliation in the church apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. So if I can go here this morning, it's what Paul's addressing here in the church, so I want to address it with us. The way I see counterfeit reconciliation play itself out the most in our church is the conversations and work that we do towards racial reconciliation. Now, I want to be really clear here. Everything I'm about to say, I'm primarily addressing within the church. I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about in here, our local church expression as Christians. So let me explain. The hostility between the Gentiles and Jews, both inside and outside the church, was palpable, deep-rooted, and fierce. So one Jewish writer, writing around the time of Jesus, said that what would happen if a Jewish father had a daughter who married a Gentile man, instead of throwing a wedding, he would actually throw a funeral. So he would have a public party where he would declare among all of his family and friends, my daughter is dead to me, and she, we, all of us, should act like she no longer exists. I don't know how you get much more divided than that. And Paul says to them, in the middle of that city, in the middle of that time, Christ himself, 2.14, Christ himself is our peace. 
He destroys the religious hostility, he destroys the cultural hostility, and he destroys the racial hostility between these two ethnic groups that have thousands of years of hating each other. Thousands of years of fighting and viewing the other as less than. He says, what Christ has done to unite you is stronger than anything that could divide you. Listen, I don't, I don't care what your political leanings are. I don't care what you think the root underlying issues are. I don't think any of us can deny that we have hostility or at the very least tension between ethnic and racial groups within our country. And that that can and has bled into the church. That's not how it should be in the world, but that's especially not how it should be within the church. And I think 99% of this room would agree with that. Like I, I really, I was very full of joy and happiness this week thinking, I don't think I need to convince most of our church that there's problems with hating people that look different than us. There's problems of disliking or looking down upon or treating as less than people that don't have the same skin color as us. I love that. I don't think I have to convince most of you of that, but here's the problem. I think the problem is when it gets into the outworking of how this actually plays itself out, how we should actually approach this. So I, I remember hearing a friend of mine preach on this passage, Ephesians 2, a few years ago, uh, back when everything was kind of coming to the spotlight again in 2017, 2018. Uh, and he's a good friend of mine. He's a, a black pastor who spent most of his life in a predominantly white church context. And then for the last seven years has planted and pastored a predominantly black church in a inner city neighborhood. And I loved what he said. <coughs> Excuse me. So I called him and I said, hey man, I love what you said two years ago. Can I have it? And he said, yes, you can have it. So I said, sweet. So he said in the sermon that there are two primary groups or camps that he sees when it comes to how to approach racial justice or division as the church within the church. Two camps. And he says, both camps, both groups have some good and some not so good. So the first group he calls uh, the shouldn't we just preach the gospel camp. And these are the people who might say things like, well, we have a sin problem, not a race problem. They're not indifferent to the problems of race. They think there's issues, there's things going on. They just think that if we make the main thing the main thing, if we just preach the gospel, make Jesus first, it'll fix it. You'll hear things like, uh, just because it's a big topic on the news doesn't mean it needs to be a big topic in our churches. We just need to preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus. That's our mission as a church. We need to stick to that. And the race stuff will sort itself out as people learn to follow Jesus. Second group, he calls the fight like the world camp. It's a group that desires to fight for racial reconciliation and justice, but have no biblical basis for the fight. This is a hot topic, so we should address it. We should post about it. We should preach about it. That happened this week. We got to say something. We got to talk about it. For lack of a better phrasing, he says sometimes you can call this group the racial reconciliation is trendy camp. You might even hear things like, well, forget about the gospel. This is just a basic human dignity thing. He says there's a subgroup within this group that looks something like I really want to be thought of as caring about this, or I don't want to get canceled if I say the wrong thing or don't say anything. And so I'll tweet and post or repost things on my social media so people think or know I care about these things I'm told to care about. Everybody else is saying something. I guess I got to say something too. And listen, both of these groups are partially right, and both of these groups are partially wrong. So let me speak to the second camp, the fight like the world camp. If you find yourself in this camp, pulled toward this camp, here's what Ephesians 2 tells us. There is no racial reconciliation without the gospel. Period. There's no racial reconciliation without the gospel. Racial unity within the church is not something we conjure up on our own. Every system we try under man's strength will fail. Our driving motivations, if not the gospel of Christ, will not last. And here's the thing, the world doesn't get that. Often the church doesn't get that. 
If we step into this as a church, if you step into this as a believer and you don't have a deep awareness of the way the gospel motivates and accomplishes this, it's never going to create in your life or in our church the fuel you need to do the long work. It's not a quick fix type of thing. If we're driven into this work, not by the gospel, but by social media and news, which change every five minutes, if we're honest, then once they're onto a new thing, so will we. There's no deep-rooted biblical conviction or gospel fuel to play the long game. We will not last. I was talking to the same friend. I was like, hey, man, give me an example of this. Give me an example of this camp. It's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around. And he talked about how often he gets invited to go preach at different churches across the state. And so he goes to those churches, and often they ask him as a black pastor, like, hey, can you preach on racial reconciliation? Give us a vision from God's word for what we should seek, what we should do. And so he preaches on that, and he said, most all of the time, somebody from the church where he's at will come up to him and say, hey, pastor, I'm, I feel really convicted. Tell me what I need to do. Like, I'm there. Tell me what I need to do. He said, hey, here's what you need to do. Every Sunday, they used to, they used to do this. I don't know if they do it anymore, but he said, every Sunday, we do a farmer's market in our local community where our church meets. He's like, we're in the middle of a food desert. If you don't know what a food desert is, it's a, usually a low-income, under-resourced community that because a lot of people don't drive, they can't get good access to produce or healthy groceries. And so he said, every Sunday, we bring a local farmer from one to three, and he takes food stamps. We sell groceries at a discount. We just really need volunteers. Please, if you want to take a step towards this, if you want to fight for racial unity within the church, within our community, just show up to that. One to three on a Sunday, show up to that. He said, Tim, on average, 20% of people would actually show up the following Sunday. He said if he'd had five conversations that day, one of those five would actually show up. And so I was just asking him, I said, hey man, why do you think this is? And this is what he said. He said, Tim, feeling bad and social pressure doesn't work. Feeling bad and social pressure does not actually help you take the necessary steps. He continued, he said, you need something in this fight that predates the news cycle. You need something in this fight that predates your social media feed. You need a sacrifice 2,000 years ago. Blood that was shed to make the two one. And that's why Ephesians 2.14 is so crucial, where Paul says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Listen, God's kingdom is one of all tribes, tongues, races, people united together. We see that in Revelation 7. But to fight for racial unity in diversity without the blood of Christ is to try to bring in a kingdom without the king. It's trying to say, hey, I want all the benefits of the kingdom of God. I want unity. I want harmony. I want unity and diversity. I want a bunch of people who are from different cultures, different backgrounds, different skin colors, all together worshiping King Jesus. But to do that without the gospel is to try to build God's kingdom without the center of the kingdom. The king, Jesus, on his throne. There's no racial reconciliation without the gospel, but let me speak to the other camp. But let's just preach the gospel camp. There's no racial reconciliation without the gospel. There's also no gospel without racial reconciliation. How can I say that? Because of God's design from this very beginning, right? A people. God's been after from the very beginning a people, not just individuals, but a people for himself from all nations. So we see this all the way back in Genesis 17. God promises Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through blessing you, I'm going to bless all nations. See that all the way up to Revelation 7, the throne room of God, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are proclaiming salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This was God's plan from the beginning. It's part of his mission now through the church. It's what he's leading us towards for all eternity, which means we preach the gospel, we address the depths of sin that lead to racism. Absolutely. 
We have a sin problem, yes, but there's also tangible action that has to happen and some necessary steps to outwork the gospel into this area of the church and to this area of our lives. Let me give you a clear example of this. We don't apply this, let's just preach the gospel, we just have a sin problem, to any other area of sin in our church. All right, so if someone comes to you and says, hey, I have a problem abusing alcohol, you would not just simply say, well, that's a sin problem. We just need to preach the gospel to it. No, right? If you were a good brother or sister in Christ, you would also say, we need to get you into some counseling. We need to get you into a 12-step. We need to get you out of physical environments that are going to put you in places where you're not going to succeed. And while we're taking tangible steps, we also need to remind you that the gospel is good news for your sin, shame, and guilt. It's got to be a both. And we preach the gospel and we take necessary, hard, deep work and steps. Humble ourselves. We listen to different perspectives. We put ourselves into situations where they're minority. We seek diverse friendships. We seek diverse lives. All of this, we need Christ. That's the whole point of the passage. Paul says, Christ, 1 through 10, he's reconciled us to God. 11 through 21, he's reconciled us to each other. We are called to unity. Christ is uniting us together. He, through his blood, has made us right with each other. And that's what we celebrate every time we gather and we celebrate communion, right? So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. He took a cup of wine. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Church, every time we eat this little wafer and we drink this little cup of juice, we are remembering, announcing, and celebrating the Lord's death until he returns. The body and blood of Christ broken, given, shed so that we could be united to God and also united to one another. So this be a reminder as we take communion of what Christ has done for you, his sacrifice for you on the cross that not only made you right with God, but also made you right with the people sitting around you. Let it drive you against bitterness. Let it drive you against lack of forgiveness. Let it push you against individualism and false reconciliation. Let it drive you, fuel you to do the deep, hard work of being a family of God over the long haul, which is hard and messy and not convenient, but is beautiful and good. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for Ephesians 2. Thanks for the church at Ephesus. It's a really encouraging thing, Lord, to see two groups of people with thousands of years of hatred, thousands of years of division, thousands of years of we're better than you, you're less than, you're other. And Jesus came, and he died, he shed his blood, he gave up his body, and he rose again so that those two groups could be united as one so that any groups that we try to make in the church could no longer be, that we could be united as one? Would you remind us of the good news of the gospel? Would you remind us of the cross of Christ, that he has made a way for us, to, that you, you, Christ, you've made a way for us to, to know God, to be in relationship with God? Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit push back against any ways we want to have false reconciliation, any ways we want to let our individualism run rampant in our lives, any ways we want to self-protect, any ways we want to have pride, any ways that we want to just chase after what we want to chase after. Help us to fight for unity. We need you. We need your spirit. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.